0: Hey listeners, Troy here. Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to remind everyone of one of our upcoming events, the AC Literary Expedition. This time around, we will be talking about Christianity and science, exploring how their story began. There's the cultural narrative that would have us believe Christianity has been oppressive to the development of science. That narrative goes something like this. After the fall of Rome, the Dark Ages set in. It was an era marked by religious fantasism and faith-oppressing knowledge. Remember Galileo Galilei? Remember Giordano Bruno? It wasn't until the Renaissance that science could break free from the shackles of Christianity and move humanity forward. Except, most professional historians of science reject this narrative. Join us on November 7th for our next AC Literary Expedition as we examine the story of Christianity and science. Take in the reading and audiovisual material that you can find on our website, Apologeticscanada.com slash acle remember that you can participate by speaking up or simply by observing once again that's november 7th from 4 to 6 p.m hope to see you there and now time for the podcast
1: hello everyone welcome to the ac podcast this is steve kim your host for today and i'm here with andy as usual
2: excited to be here steve
1: most of you probably are aware by now that uh, we have this event coming up called Apologetics Canada Literary Expedition. And this time around, we're going to be looking at the relationship between Christianity and science. And in preparation for that, we have invited a very special guest all the way from the UK. We have on the line today, Dr. Seb Falk. He is a historian of medieval science and medicine at the University of Cambridge. He earned a BA in in history and Spanish at the University of Oxford, and an MPhil and PhD in History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. He specializes in the history of astronomy, navigation, and mathematics from their ancient origins to modern developments. He's particularly interested in astronomical theory and practice, techniques of calculation and instrument making. And the relationship between religion and science and so on. This interest, I think, is very well captured in his book, The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science, which is the book we want to discuss today. And if Dr. Falk is too modest to mention, uh, The Light Ages was a book of the year 2020 in The Times, The Telegraph, and other publications It has also been shortlisted for the Hughes Prize, awarded by the British Society for the History of Science. With that said, Dr. Falk, thank you so much for making time to be on the show with us today. Thank you very much for
3: inviting me.
2: It is great to have you with us. I Honestly, I've been really looking forward to this interview. Your book, uh, The Light Ages, was wonderful. And I, I'm so glad that I, I don't audiobook a lot, but I audiobooked this one. And I was so glad that I did because you actually read your book. And I think that that would be necessary because there is Latin and Old English and all sorts of stuff in there. And it was very cool to hear you
3: read it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that, reading the Middle English and the Old French and Italian and 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 stuff like that. So it was it was great fun to do and nice to imagine people listening to me, uh, albeit uh, maybe a bit <laughs> creepy. I don't know. I got to ask you.
2: <laughs> so I I just uh, recently had a book that came out as well, but they didn't ask me if I wanted to narrate it. They just hired somebody and just just had somebody narrate it. But when you narrated it yourself, like, did you
3: make lots of mistakes? Like. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I forgot I forgot how to pronounce like completely ordinary words when you're just reading from the page and you want to pronounce it correctly and mm-hmm. you start mm-hmm. thinking how do I even pronounce this I spent ages getting, tripping over the word Westminster, you know, like the city center <laughs> okay. of what is now London. And I was saying, West, Westminster, Westminster, why can't I make this sound right? And the sound engineer was like, you don't pronounce the T in Westminster. <laughs> and it was just, it's Westminster. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. I'm a native English speaker. Like I was born here. What's the problem? Why can't I pronounce that? But I think when you start reading this thing and you get really blinkered, you um, you lose like the ability to speak your own language. It's crazy. Well,
2: that makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. So thank you. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Before we jump into the book, I I just wanted to ask you, and we do this with all of our interviewees, just uh, as a chance for you to be humanized in the eyes, or I guess in our case, in the ears of our listeners. At the risk of sounding too philosophical, can you tell our listeners who is Seb Falk?
3: Oh, gosh. I guess I'll fall back on, on on my Twitter bio, where I say Uh, as well as being a historian at the University of Cambridge, I say, singer, sailor, runner, father. Um, And I also used to have dog lover on there, but I ran out of characters. Um, And I replaced the dog lover with a quote that the New Yorker said about me, which I've taken a bit out of context, but I like it anyway, which is always generous. They said I was being always generous to the people in the Middle Ages who maybe made some silly mistakes, but I I just took always generous because I like that. Um, But yeah, singer, sailor, runner, father. I try and do as much as I can. I try and do as many different things as I can. um, But family is the most important thing to me.
2: Mm-hmm. I was gonna add one in there, by the way, because uh, I feel like a kindred spirit when I was reading, you know, your interests. Because another one of them is mountain climbing or backpacking. Uh, if I'm if if I read that correctly, and that that is uh, my, one of my greatest
3: loves as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's not much opportunity for it down here in Cambridge, uh, so you have to go a long way across the country. I mean, okay, a long way across the UK. For you guys in Canada, is nothing. But uh, but in terms of traveling across the UK, there aren't any mountains down here. Uh, Cambridge is famously mm. flat and boggy, uh, but uh, but I do love the mountains. And, and whenever I can get to them, I try and get up and uh, get out and away from people and, and up into the fresh air.
2: And the uh, interesting fact that we learned from you before the show was that you, in fact, lived in Victoria at one point. I did,
3: yes. And I explored as much as I could of Vancouver Island and went up to Haida Gwaii uh, and into the Gulf islands as well. Uh, And it's just, I mean, the most unbelievably beautiful landscape, you know, when we go to national parks in the UK and national parks here are still kind of made by human habitation. They've been grazed by Mm -hmm. agriculture. They are the product of, of, Thousands or at least hundreds of years of uh, of human use and habitation, whereas over there you guys have real national parks, you know, places that you can imagine that no human being has ever been, and nature is is truly wild. Although you know, never untouched, of course, by our effects on the planet, sadly. But um, yeah. you know, uh, the wilderness, I think, is is just the greatest thing about what you guys have over there.
1: As we get into the book, the Light Ages, I just want to start off with this
3: question why did you write this book? Yeah, well, I, I started as an academic. Um, well, I started initially as a history teacher. So I was kind of always interested in communicating ideas to people in a really accessible way. But I was doing academic research, and I got to the end of my PhD research. And um, I had a piece of research, which could have been an academic publication. And in, in some parts of it have been published as as journal articles and that kind of thing but i really wanted to communicate it to a wide audience because i got to the end of my phd on medieval science and i realized that what academics know about medieval science is so far away from what ordinary people mm-hmm. often think about medieval science, that there was a definite gap I could fill, because so many people still believe that everybody in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat, that the church stifled science in a very deliberate and aggressive way, uh, and um, that basically everybody was ignorant and and digging around in the mud with sticks. Uh, And um, there are so many easy ways to Uh, kind of overturn those myths. But I didn't want to be myth busting because people don't really like being told you're wrong and you're stupid. um, Mm -hmm. any more than people in the Middle Ages would like to be told that they're wrong and they're stupid. I didn't (laughs) want to just say to my readers, you know, you're wrong about these things you believe about the Middle Ages. I wanted to bring the Middle Ages to life for them. And so the book Mm -hmm. really happened when I discovered this man, John Westwick, who I built the story around, because he, for me, was a kind of a line that would run through the book. So when I was explaining science to the to the reader, I wasn't boring them with all the details. I wanted to give them enough detail to really understand it for what it was, not to just have to take my word for it, that it was really impressive, but to truly understand how impressive the achievements of the Middle Ages were. But I didn't want to get bogged down in the science. So I had this story of this really amazing and interesting individual who runs through the book and we learn what he learned. And that for me was the kind of genesis of the book, was discovering his life and realising that I could build this book around it.
2: Honestly, as an author, I thought that that was such a a smart way to tell the story because as you know, when when a book's just telling you facts, or it just becomes this history textbook sort of thing, but yours is very engaging. It's a story that you're drawn into. But one of the other things that you do a part of the book that I really enjoyed was that you you constantly, not only tell them a story, your reader a story, but you're bringing them into primary sources at the same time and you're also giving them just these gold nuggets Of what you have found in your research that just you just can't help but be drawn in, and I I I loved it. And I I can't tell you this. So many of my friends have been annoyed after I read your book because I was like, let me give you a gold nugget. Here's another gold nugget, like of of what I learned, uh, because I thought it was so so good. And Steve and I are in agreement with you. You know, in our own master's work and you know doctoral work, you know, you come across things like the warfare thesis or the conflict thesis. And and you realize you know these ideas that have crept into our thinking this baggage that we still hold on to that's actually not that old. It's not even that hard to debunk. But yet I'll find it in my kids' textbooks that the that people in the past thought that the Earth was flat. Mm. Just some, yeah. even though you can find that today, it, it's
3: mm. it's <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a misreading often a really good way to debunk it, right? Because it's it's true that some people in the past did believe really stupid things, but so do some people today. And I think the first (laughs) and easiest way to to kind of get around this idea is to remember that not everybody in the Middle Ages shared a brain. Uh, Not everybody in the Middle Mm -hmm. Ages thought the same. And and so, you know, whenever, and and because so often people who critique the past and who, you know, have a particular ax to grind for whatever reason against organized religion or against, you know, because they are promoting science and they believe that, you know, genuinely, you you need to kind of uh, promote science in this way by, by saying how little people knew in the past. They are. They can find examples. They can cherry pick examples. But the point is, you know, you have to understand that that the Middle Ages, like all periods, is a time when ideas can flourish and when different people can believe different things. Uh, and and that I think then gets people interested, and then they can understand the debates, and then they want to know, like, why are people coming to their 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 beliefs in different ways, and and that then makes them historians, it makes them interested mm-hmm. to find out more about the past, rather than me just saying, this is what people believed. I wanted, it. And as you say, bringing people into the primary sources allows them to kind of understand things as they were communicated, as they were explained, which does two things. Number one, um, it shows how much science in the Middle Ages was part of the culture of the time. So by quoting literature that has kind of scientific content, I can show that science wasn't this kind of separate sphere in a way that it it really is in many ways today. And secondly, because the history of science is about the history of communication, like... Science is about communicating ideas, and so ideas are shaped by the ways they're communicated. And the way to get that message across is to show precisely how they're communicated, both in words and in objects and, and inventions, physical gadgets and diagrams and, and all other ways that ideas can be communicated.
1: I have to agree with what Andy said just earlier about that popular conception of the dark ages and science and In my experience, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but certainly when I was going through school in the science classes, there was only one time that I heard anything about the church, and it was always in connection to Galileo. And this story was told as a way to show that the church has been oppressive to the development of science. And even you you mentioned this at the very beginning of the book, that even to put the terms medieval and science together, for many people, it just doesn't compute. Now, one thing that I really loved about your book is, again, how you kind of drive it in a kind of a narrative format following John of Westwick. And what it, what really struck me is this view of monks. Because when we think of monks and monasteries, we think, you know, here are a bunch of old people, you know, just copying Bibles all day long and that that's all they ever did. But what I noticed is the monks were engaged in many different things, contrary to perhaps what people generally think of them. Could you comment a little bit more about that? What what were the monks the kinds of things that they were engaged in?
3: Well, monks had a huge number of opportunities to engage in kind of serious scholarship. So in principle, of course, they were dedicating their lives to God and they were dedicating their lives to prayer Mm -hmm. uh, and to divine work. But how you define divine work changed over time and was different in different orders and in individual monasteries. Mm -hmm. Um, But Clearly, one of the things that the church over centuries has valued is learning of one form or another. Uh, And so monasteries always, you know, from the very beginning, really had libraries and had collections of texts. uh, And those were prized possessions of monasteries. and, And the more books you had in principle, the more learning you could uh, gain and you could preserve. And so monasteries were places where learning was was preserved and was stored, learning of all kinds. And there were many different opinions about what kinds of learning were appropriate uh, for monks to, to focus on. Of course, uh, study of the scriptures was always central, uh, mm-hmm. as was learning the practices, the daily practices of of the church. And that includes learning about the order and the arrangement of feasts, which includes understanding the calendar. And if you will need to understand the calendar, you need to understand the cycles of the sun and the moon, because of course, although uh, the the Roman calendar, which uh, monks in latin christendom in, in what's now western europe uh were using the roman calendar was a solar calendar of course christianity uh commemorates events in the life of jesus who was jewish and uh, as we all know easter um happened during the feast of passover which was set according to the hebrew calendar which was a lunisolar calendar so christians in order to accurately commemorate the life of Christ had to understand the cycles of the sun and moon. So already they're getting into potentially quite complex astronomy because the the solar and lunar cycles are incommensurate. You can't map them precisely onto each other. So you're always producing and, and refining some kind of mathematical approximation. So the sky is the limit, literally, in terms of how precise you want to be with your astronomy. But more broadly than that, there's also this sense, as late medieval theologians, uh, but also from early medieval uh, theology, had had intimated and implied that in order to truly understand God, in order to kind of get closer to the mind of God, one could study creation, one could study nature uh, as a way of Understanding God's purpose and in, in in working in the world on a daily basis, uh, so there was a very popular metaphor uh, of the two books that that Christians had to study God through the book of Scripture, of course, but also through the book of nature, uh, and that was equally valid. And the more you studied it, the more you'd get out of it. So there was always this kind of support, but different monasteries did things in different ways. Certain monasteries were closer to centers of power. Certain monasteries had closer associations with the universities after those were founded in the 12th century. And other monasteries, of course, monks really valued Kind of getting away from society, getting away from uh, civilization or, or centers of population, and there you wouldn't have such uh, rich libraries. So again, there's these differences of opinion, uh, but certainly, particularly in the High Middle Ages, you know, the kind of eleventh, uh, twelfth centuries, a young scholarly man, you know, and attended. It was always well, not always men actually. There were there were women involved as well in in uh, women, female houses. But if if you were interested in scholarship, a monastery would by no means be the worst place to be.
2: Now, there's so much to unpack, and I, I'm like, where where do I start? But I, let's continue on this this idea of the monasteries, because an aspect of your book that I'd love for you just to elaborate on was the actually, and you, and you just mentioned it briefly there, was the birth of the university, and and I and I thought this was very interesting with regards to these unions coming together. Could you just elaborate on, you know, how how did the monastery and these these unions ultimately birth the university and and while
3: you're doing that, you know, what role did Christianity play in this? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think universities like to have foundation dates, right? So often you'll hear that a university was founded in a certain day and we have this idea of somebody laying a stone and like writing, signing a charter or sealing a charter. Uh, but the earliest universities weren't really founded in that way. They were much more organic developments out of the towns in which uh, they they grew up. And basically what happened was uh, the church because of its wealth, and because of its focus on literacy and learning, more or less had a monopoly on education in, in, in Western Europe in the early Middle Ages. So the church had schools, and those schools were really designed to uh, educate the up-and-coming administrators for the church, but also of course the theologians uh, and, and the lawyers, because the church had its own kind of streams of law. And people in the in the High Middle Ages really began to appreciate the value of education in a society that was rapidly urbanizing, that was becoming wealthier, uh, and in which trade was increasing, as well as knowledge from the Islamic world and uh, knowledge that had come out of Byzantium as well, the kind of the the old Eastern Roman Empire based in Constantinople, this knowledge was coming back into Europe. And so uh, opportunities to learn things about, say, medicine were coming in. So you've got basically people who want to learn about the law, who want to learn about administration, who want to learn about theology, who want to learn about medicine. And uh, where can they be taught? They can be taught around cathedrals, because the cathedrals had cathedral schools. And and the cathedrals had long educated people. Basically, they'd filled up spare space in their classrooms by educating the children of of the wealthy aristocracy or or local uh, rich people who wanted their children to have a bit of education. Um, But The demand for those outstripped the supply. And so you ended up with private masters essentially setting up their own private schools or their own literally just uh, taking in individual pupils as kind of tutors. around those cathedral schools because that's kind of where the market was for it. And so what you get is, you know, one master is teaching a bunch of students. Then another master comes along and says, well, I can pick up any overspill. Then more students come along because they hear that there's opportunities to learn here. And the whole thing grows up in a very organic way. Then what happens is, you know, you get potential conflict in the town because you have a bunch of students who aren't behaving properly. University students have always been the same. They've always misbehaved. Uh, Or you get (laughs) masters who aren't paying the right kind of tax or who are demanding premises, uh, you know, who who want somewhere safe to teach. Um, And you get conflict between the townspeople and the masters and students. And the masters and students form unions to fight for their rights. Sometimes it's the masters, sometimes it's the students, but they're fighting for their rights with or against um, local landowners, local people, uh, in order to protect themselves. So actually, in a way, the universities—people talk about you know the problems of safe spaces in the universities and how you know students like safe spaces and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But but the universities have always uh, had this issue with students wanting safe spaces. I mean, in, in the Middle Ages, it was literally safe spaces where they wouldn't be attacked by townspeople. So they formed these unions, and the word universitas in Latin means a union. And they get their rights and they get charters from local people. And those become the first universities. And then, of course, they acquire buildings and they acquire libraries and and structures and dress codes and, uh, you know, formal uh, matriculation and graduation and whatever the terminology is in your part of the world, which all go back to the Middle Ages. But, But the first things are the kind of the unions of students and masters fighting for their rights. And then what happens, but I won't Go on in too much detail about this is that they acquire loads more texts in the 12th and 13th centuries from translations, mostly via the Islamic world, but translations often of ancient Greek materials, which really enriched the 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 new universities and allowed them to flourish and develop and become real centers for learning.
1: On that note, another thing that I picked up from your book is that there. Seems to have been lots of interaction between Europe and science in the Islamic world or the ancient world. It it because my conception of medieval Europe growing up has always been this sort of almost like this cloister like it's a bubble with uh, where scientific progress is uh, has stagnated and there's no interaction really with the outside world because they would have considered the Islamic view of things, really just heresies anyway, right? These are infidels. uh, They don't believe what we believe. But that doesn't seem to be like, that's not the impression that I get reading your work. Can you comment more on that, please?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think if you're looking at the early Middle Ages, so say from around 500 to 1000, you might have a somewhat of a case that trade broke down after the fall of the Roman Empire or I say the fall of the Western Roman Empire because the Roman Empire continued as as I've said in in Byzantium in Constantinople but um you know there was an economic decline and with an economic decline goes a decline in communications decline in trade and decline in learning um and but it wasn't absolute there was always learning that continued some of the greatest minds that we think of of the middle ages people like saint augustine uh well he was in north africa of course but uh the venerable bede alcuin of york uh you know some of these names uh, isidore of seville uh who who's been kind of suggested as uh the 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 patron saint of the internet are uh, are figures of the early Middle Ages who really collected information and and spread it as far and wide as they could, but particularly in the later Middle Ages, where ideas uh, flood in to points of contact between the Christian and the Islamic worlds, and and that is really Spain, southern Italy, and Sicily, and to some extent uh, in in Palestine uh, during the Crusades, um, the the Christians immediately see that the... is I have to hesitate slightly on this because one can say Muslims and one can say Arabs or one can say Arabic-speaking scholars, and none of those quite captures it because uh, there are Jews alongside Muslims. A lot of the scholarship mm. is in Persian, although much of it is is in the Arabic language. Uh, and of course, they're not all ethnically uh, Arabs. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we say the Islamicate world to try and kind of cover all of that. Uh, but the Christians realise that they are behind. You know, they've they've got some catching up to do. Um, and the first thing I think that's really important to say is that there is no sense that in matters concerning science, in matters concerning knowledge of creation and the natural world, uh, that the learning of other faiths is to be reflexively discarded. Um, And and this is very clear right from the writings of the early church fathers, you know, uh, Augustine uh, famously talks about um, the Egyptian gold, which the Israelites fleeing Egypt took with them. And it wasn't stealing because they were taking this treasure from the oppressors, from the Pharaohs, and they were putting it to better use. Uh, And so Augustine says in the same way, if uh, a pagan, if, if somebody who is not a Christian, understand something about nature, understand something about the world, which uh, Christians don't, then you can embrace that. You can take that and you can learn from it. Far better to do that than to uphold something, claiming that you are following the Bible, but just make Christianity look stupid. I mean, that's literally what Augustine mm. says. He's like, why would we want the infidels to laugh at us? Because we claim to be following scripture, but actually we are uh, blind to the to the way that nature works. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he's promoting that. Idea. And we see that. I mean, there's there's a lovely single source, which I mentioned in my book, uh, which I love because it kind of shows the chain of flow of ideas. And it's a monk in Bury St. Edmunds, near where I am in Cambridge, so in, in East Anglia in England, in the 13th century, writing in Latin and introducing, translating um, a work on the new Hindu Arabic numerals. We call them Arabic numerals, so, you know, the, the ones we use today, but more properly they should be called Indo-Arabic or Hindu-Arabic numerals because they originally came from India. Uh, and uh, this monk writing in England says, uh, al khwarizmi said, I have brought you these numbers, these nine symbols from India, uh, and, and that everybody should learn these. And so this guy in England understood that he was bringing the ideas of an Arabic scholar, Al-Khwarizmi, who was from what's now kind of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan today, so in Central Asia. And Al-Khwarizmi had brought those ideas from India and he'd brought them uh, to the Abbasid Caliphate in in Baghdad. Uh, And so there's this this process of communication of scientific ideas from India through Central Asia to um, the centre of the Islamic world at the time in 8th, ninth century Baghdad, and from there into Spain, and from there into uh, Western Europe, and that our monk in East Anglia understood this and had absolutely no problem with the fact that he was picking up these ideas uh, from other cultures, I think is a great illustration of of the way that uh, science has proceeded through these processes of communication.
2: I think that's a, a good place for us to jump off into an important question that is at that is uh, on my mind and I think is, is really, and you can disagree with this, but I think is central to your book, and that is, what exactly is science? And I, and, I, and I think about this, you know, you pose the question of what was medieval science, and then we think about, you know, modern science. My, my doctoral work, I looked at um, a thinker by the name of Michael Polanyi, I don't know if you've come across uh, his name. But he he was a scientist, a, a very respected scientist that would ultimately go into philosophy, because he saw how intertwined the these ideas were. And he he held a ve- I thought this was interesting because I mean he made a lot of incredible discoveries in physical chemistry, but he holds a very loose definition to science. You know, because I know a lot of people tend to think the scientific method and these other things, but one of the ideas that really comes through in your book is is that science is is, uh, is discovery, and this is very much what Polanyi gets at—that it's a it's a heuristic effort, it's an inspired effort, it's an interest to know, where you're 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 seeking to. Find answers to these, you know, these mysteries that you're encountering in various ways. I mean, what what's your what's your response to that? I mean, with regards to how we understand science, it seems as though these days that we've kind of got a, a modern idea of science that's
3: not quite right. Yeah, I mean, I, that question could could take us all night to answer. Of course, but I think that anybody who's studied this issue realizes that science is much harder to define than it first appears. So it's easy to say, do you know what, chemistry is science and history isn't science, but but why? And where do the boundaries lie? Um, is astronomy truly science? Because you don't do the kind of experiments that you think of when you think of science, when you do astronomy, because you can't um, control the conditions in the way that one might like to. Uh, is psychology truly a science? Is economics a science? Where do the boundaries of these things Really lie. Um, and uh, I suppose the easiest answer to that question is science is what science does, uh, and uh, it's what scientists do. And when you think about it in those terms, you start to realize that it's not a collection of facts about nature. And so often the mistakes that people make uh, are that they mistake science for nature. So they think that when they're talking uh, about you know, the way that nature works. They're talking about science per se, but there is a line to be drawn there because science is really human understandings and theories about nature. And uh, and and what that means is uh, that it's coloured by the particular lenses that we choose to look At the world through and the particular ways that we want to describe the world. And if you think about it, I think in terms of practices, what people do when they're doing science, then you get a much more interesting range of answers to the question than trying to think about sort of disembodied theories that somehow exist without any kind of human intervention, which uh, really works for very few sciences, um, because all sciences in one form or another are kind of coloured by the way that they've developed in their histories. And this is science in the present day course back in the past you and once you realize this and you start to look at the past then you you realize uh, that, uh, that that the cultural uh contexts in which science up springs up really do color the way that that science is developed and formed uh, and then i think it gives you a much richer understanding of, of what scientists do
2: that's one of the things that i really appreciated about your book is you get a sense that listen, this is actually pretty messy. It's pretty complicated. It's not so easy just to draw these fine lines. And honestly, I see that there's this need by both Christian and and non alike as they're looking at science that it's so easy to want to just kind of draw these fine lines where it's like, no, it's actually complicated that the the distinction between astronomy and astrology isn't as fine as you would like it to be.
3: And it's possible to be right for the wrong reasons or wrong oh, for the right reason.
2: Oh, can I can I just tell you one that's on my mind and I'd love to hear, you know, your examples, but I think of Copernicus as as an interesting example that, you know, he's he's seen these epicycles and the math worked you know, but but he's just not liking it. I think it's so interesting how much math and philosophy was actually driving the debates than it was theology that was driving the debates. And that ultimately what brings him to a heliocentric universe isn't as clean or like what you would think it to be, you know, as, as he's, you know, thinking on these things. Because, I mean, he's also an interesting example in that, you know, observation, he it's his reason that's leading him to a conclusion other than his observation, which is also, con- again,
3: messy. Yeah, I mean, Copernicus is a great example of this, I think. And historians continue to, bait, to debate what precisely was on Copernicus's mind when he came up with heliocentricity. Um, but I think it's important to emphasize that uh, even if he was right. And and arguably, he wasn't even right, because he still believed that everything went around in perfect circles. Uh, And it wasn't really until Kepler came along uh, 50 odd years later, uh, that Uh, the idea of kind of elliptical motion solved some of the problems uh, that that Copernicus had been unable to solve uh, in in his theories. Exactly as you say, a lot of it is about making the maths work and it's about kind of solving pure geometrical problems in a more satisfying way. uh, And and according to uh, principles that to us seem, uh, you know, perhaps unnecessary or or unhelpful, like the principle of perfect circular motion. Um, And Copernicus... Although uh, you know he was more right than 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 earlier theories like the Ptolemaic theory that uh, had kind of been used and had worked really well for fifteen hundred years up to that point. Um, Uh, ignored a lot of really physical problems, and he was unable to resolve a lot of those problems. Like, uh, why is it that if we're moving through the universe at hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of miles an hour, we don't feel the wind rushing past our ears constantly? Why is it if the stars, uh, you know, if we're moving around the sun, moving thousands of miles against the background of the stars, why don't we see any kind of parallax? These are problems that were raised at the time. And I think the really important thing then to understand is that there's this really active debate. And that's not just happening in the 16th century when Copernicus was working. It's happening throughout the Middle Ages. People are debating points about all kinds of aspects of, uh, of nature, you know, around the calendar, for example, which I've already mentioned. What's the problem with the calendar? Why is it that the church calendar isn't doing quite the job we want it to for predicting the times of new moon and full moon? Uh, and do we need to refine that? And crucially, and, and I think highly relevant for our own time, how does policy reflect the information that scientists we wouldn't call them scientists in that day but but that the experts are giving the policymakers if you want to revise your calendar it means getting rid of all of your existing calendars and they they didn't have (laughs) the kind of the political will to do that until the 16th century Gregorian calendar reform, which gave us the calendar we use today. People, scientists understood the problems, and that's the same as any debate that you might encounter today, be it around COVID mitigation or climate change or what have you.
2: I, I think that's such an important point. It gets back to it's messy, and there's these debates happening, and we have to continue to work through them. I, I mean, I think about again back to my doctoral work. The when I think about Michael Polanyi, you know, he's living in the UK and he's really He's really inspired to go into philosophy and, and get into this debate because of scientific planning committees, where they think that science is some sort of machine. You just direct it at the problem you want, and you'll just get the answer you need, and we can solve You know anything, and Polanyi's like science doesn't work like that. You know, it's not some sort of machine that you just point at problems. But I think it's interesting though. Today we've got our own issues. I think about big business to politics, right? There are various challenges to whether or not science is actually doing science or if
3: it's just trying to help the bottom line. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely spot on, and. You know, I suppose the question is, what can historians and philosophers of science kind of contribute to this debate? Because I think sometimes we're not exactly helping ourselves because we just say, oh, it's much more complicated than that. And we don't necessarily offer solutions. But at other times, uh, you know, we can be a bit too prescriptive and then people say, hey, back off. Uh, Actually, you know, we need to... Uh, balance out our different priorities here. So it, it is a very difficult difficult problem to solve, I think. But I think if we're doing our job properly, we can at least draw people's attention to the fact that these things are not automatic. These things are produced by people. Science is a human product. Politics is a human product. Business is a human product. And these, these things all have to interact. And if we can kind of understand the way that they're working, then at least we can give, them, give ourselves some power to solve the problems that arise.
1: Yeah. Speaking of disagreements, um, I really liked the way you put it earlier that the medievals didn't share a brain. So the disagreements that we see in modernity, uh, it's not just the product of modernity, you see this happening in in the medieval era as well. And one of the things that I would like you comment on, uh, you see sometimes disagreements not happening not just among scientists themselves, although, like you pointed out, we wouldn't have necessarily called them that back then. But what about the disagreements that happened between theologians and scientists or these experts of the natural world, uh, because some people might see that and and go, okay, here's a case of the church persecuting scientists. Is that really what's going on or is is this simply a disagreement between theologians and scientists? a little bit of both or maybe something else altogether? What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are different cases where, where different things happen, but but most often, I think it's about, spheres of power and spheres of influence. So quite often when people do get into trouble, and there are cases where people get into trouble with the church authorities, although Mm -hmm. you have to say that the church even if in its dreams it's kind of a, a universalizing institution, it's never as monolithic or as universally powerful as uh, as, as people sometimes imagine. But there are times when when uh, philosophers in the universities, for example, uh, get into trouble uh, with the church. But it's usually because they are straying into theology, and it's about the church saying, "No, theology is our turf. You stay off our business, and we won't stay into your stray into your business." Uh, And there are places where theology and uh, scientific ideas, ideas about nature and, and the universe, do overlap, and uh, there's a need to kind of negotiate those. So some obvious things. Aristotle uh, was the key ancient Greek philosopher whose ideas were tremendously influential in the medieval universities, and Aristotle says very clearly that the universe is eternal. Now that clearly conflicts with Christian doctrine, and so it would have been extremely difficult for any philosopher Uh, in the Middle Ages to teach that the universe is eternal. Now, people don't worry so much about that today because we don't think that the universe is eternal. So we don't really mind that the church stopped people thinking that the universe was eternal. But that actually was a case, probably, where uh, religion made it hard for people to keep an open mind, scientifically speaking. But there are other cases which are more interesting and more complex, for example, where uh, Aristotle says that a vacuum can't exist. Again, we disagree with Aristotle today, but the philosophers have a lot of debate about whether it's possible for a vacuum to exist they have a tendency to want to try and believe Aristotle if they possibly can. But the theologians say, well, it's a bit problematic for you to say something can't exist because it constrains the power of God. So uh, really, it's better to say it doesn't exist, but God could make it if he wants to. And then you're kind of slightly splitting hairs around these debates. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what, what happens really is that the the church kind of wants to monitor what's being taught where. And it's the same as in any university today, right? If you start teaching your colleagues classes, they're going to be a bit upset about that. So a lot of it is about maintaining the boundaries between departments. The philosophers taught in the Faculty of Arts, which is a misleading name for us today because it covered the sciences as well, but it was a kind of foundational faculty that included things like arithmetic, geometry, but also logic and um. And grammar and and, and astronomy, um, and the theologians taught in the higher faculty of theology. So there's a kind of a, a separation there, and and as long as people kind of respect those boundaries, they can more or less get away with teaching whatever they want. Um, mm. And where you get areas of conflict is where there's strong personalities who are kind of overstepping the bounds, and sometimes they get treatment that by today's standards, we would consider to be pretty harsh. But at other times you can kind of say, well, do you know what, they should have kept their mouths shut. Um, And, you know, Galileo is a kind of classic example of this, right? Because Galileo, of course, as you already mentioned, is this totemic example of conflict between uh, between, um, science and religion as it's presented, even though both of those things, science and religion are problematic as concepts because neither really exists in the form that we understand them today. Back in the the 17th century when, when Galileo was working, Um, but the issue with Galileo, again, was that he was trying to reinterpret theology. He was trying to rewrite theology according to what he understood to be the workings of the universe, Um, and so he was great friends with the Pope, uh, and uh, the Pope had asked him uh, to kind of put his ideas on the Copernican model of the universe down on paper, and Galileo did it in a way that was deeply personally insulting to the Pope. So, you know, it wasn't that he was teaching heliocentricity per se. Copernicus's book uh, on the revolutions in which he uh, promoted this idea of heliocentricity was um, censored slightly by the church, but it was censored to take out the references to God he didn't say ta- they didn't take out any of the references to heliocentricity. They took out the references to God because they were like, we shouldn't have references to God in this. Uh, work which is not a work of theology. Uh, so it's about kind of maintaining the separation of, of the disciplines for the church there, but it's also about maintaining the honour of the church in an era when they're fighting against the Reformation. Remember that this is the period when, uh, you know, Protestantism is sprouting up all over Europe, and the church is really wanting to make sure that they kind of keep a lid on things. And Galileo, of course, ends up famously under house arrest, but that's when he produces his best work. You know, it's far from a, uh, you know, dank and dingy prison. Uh, He in fact manages, part of his his punishment is to say uh, prayers and penance, and he's allowed to get his daughter to do that for him so he can spend more of his working day actually writing. Uh, So, you know, it's not so bad for him. In some ways, obviously, you know, we we would like to think that uh, the church had been completely open-minded to any of these things. But, you know, you have to kind of understand that on a case-by-case basis, the uh, outcomes are different. Mm-hmm. So I
2: I got two more questions for you. Uh, the first one is is a question that I was thinking as I was reading your book, and then also just as I learned about your PhD work. What surprised you in your research? Uh, what What did you walk away from going? Oh man, like that's not maybe maybe you did think it was going to be that way, or like I didn't think it was going to be that, that way. But you know what what uh, what surprised you or inspired you in, in your research?
3: That's a great question. I think probably it was the kind of openness to new ideas, ideas that kind of overturned and challenged what people had previously thought, because I think we're so often told that people in the Middle Ages uh, were deferent uh, to ancient authority. They deferred to ancient authority and they thought that no new knowledge was possible. And there is, to an extent, that is true. Uh, And they had a really, I think, quite healthy respect for the tried and tested over the like dangerously novel um, and untested ideas. Um, But where you do get new ideas, new inventions, they come in remarkably quickly and with remarkably little upset. Of course there are people that say oh things were better in the old days, but you know people say that today. <laughs> but for example the mechanical clock, which is a new invention in the later middle ages, completely overturned the way that people told the time and thereby overturned the way that people had prayed in monasteries for hundreds of years because rather than having 12 hours every day from sunrise to sunset so that those hours would change in length throughout the year they went to the system we use today where there are just 24 hours from one sunrise to the following sunrise and those hours are the same length and that's a fundamental change because it means that you're praying at different times so this is you know really shaking the foundations of of the church and yet it just came in without any upset, without anybody complaining about it. As far as we can tell, whatsoever, there was just this shift, and and yeah, you know, that kind of openness to innovation, I think, was was really surprising to me, as well as the openness to different sources of innovation, as I've already mentioned. If those ideas came from from places, you know, where people spoke different languages or practiced different faiths.
2: Reading in your book, this was one of the things that I really walked away from, that I I'm, I was kind of interestingly i guess surprised by was you know you know you call it the light ages which you know for for many myself included i i had just kind of bought into the dark ages idea right and that this was a time of stagnation but as i read your work and as i've and as i've done more research over the years i'm i'm really getting an appreciation that as human beings we have been on a journey of discovery for a long time it's it's been a it's been a process. It's been this this journey. And you see that journey continuing through these medieval times that we would often attribute to stepping back intellectually, but actually you see, no, we've we we've been
3: on this journey for some time. I don't know. Yeah, you, I'd, I'd, I'd say a couple of things about that. Uh first of all, I mean the light ages is a kind of provocative title, right? And I don't wanna say that everything today is awful and everything back in the middle ages was amazing. Clearly, mm-hmm. if you ask me when would I rather be alive, I'd rather be alive today with antibiotics and social care and you know all of the things yeah. that we have in today's society where I can talk to you guys thousands of miles away and have a really lovely enjoyable conversation. Um so, you know, I don't I'm I'm being a little bit provocative with that. Um but that said, uh I think there's two two things to say. Number one, that the achievements that we often ascribe to later periods have their roots in the period that has sometimes been termed the Dark Ages. So when we talk about the Renaissance, for example, the whole point about the Renaissance was that it was a rebirth, that's where the word comes from, Renaissance, uh, of classical ancient learning, and that everything between the fall of Rome and Leonardo da Vinci had been a kind of forgettable millennium where nothing happened. Uh, and But that was the Renaissance self-promotion. That's them promoting themselves as the heirs to the classical period. So they've got a vested interest in belittling what came in between. But if you look at it for even a second, you realise that all of those same motivations they had happened in the Middle Ages too. So people were translating works from ancient Greece and Rome and trying to develop on them and build on them. The big difference uh, that happens in the Renaissance is the invention of the printing press, which allows those ideas to be spread much more quickly and to be readily critiqued and developed and, and so on. So that, you know, there are changes and there are refinements, but if you want to, you know, pick a period of greatness, you could easily push it back into the Middle Ages. The other thing I think that's really important to say is that we mustn't assume that people have always had the same priorities. So even if we say they made less technological progress than than we have in the last 100 years, that... Valorizes technological progress as a marker of human success. Now, that's not a bad thing. Like, I love technology, as I've just said, but it's not the only marker of human success. And I think they would not have recognised it in those terms, even though they loved gadgets. You know, I spend a lot of my book talking about astrolabes and other medieval gadgets. They loved those things in the Middle Ages, but they also valued things that people today don't value, like moral progress. I mean, the very idea of moral progress in today's society is dubious, and perhaps rightly so because I think, you know, one person's moral progress is another person's moral decline. And the people who think they're making moral progress are often abusing and victimizing other people. So, you know, we rightly are skeptical of that idea, but I think it's important to recognize that such ideas do exist. And thereby, you know, when we say, was there progress in this in this period. We have to say, what progress? Whose progress? Who gets to define progress? Uh, and think about what it was that people really valued. And then you get, I think, a much rounder picture of human achievements across a long sp- spread of time.
2: And, and I guess on top of that, what you see is that, that achievement had steps to it. I mean, you might think it's great all the places we sailed and the places that were found in this exploration. But like you say, they had gadgets like astrolabes that had to come together. That took time. And to think that that's just going to be linear without any mistakes, any engineer friend of mine would tell you very funny. I have, a, I have one engineer friend of mine. He's like, Andy, I have yet to come up with an idea and and make it all the way to production without many, many mistakes along the ways. Like that, that's just I think we have to just appreciate. I mean that that's what it is to make a discovery. I mean you're you're going into the unknown and and it's going to be it's going to be challenging. This this kind of leads up to my second question uh for you that's uh, uh this is my own interest coming out and that is one of the things I loved about the book is just that you do play off of things like astrolabes and and what does it look like to navigate from the stars and and that sort of thing and I know one of one of your interests is sailing and that you are able to sail using the, or navigate using the stars. I, I'd love just to get a snapshot of w- what does that look like? What does it look like for somebody to navigate using the stars? Um, this would intrigue
3: me uh, a lot. I've always been fascinated yeah, I by mean, this. I guess it depends on where you're trying to go and how. Um, but I think it's important to note that GPS is a relatively recent invention. Uh, When I first started sailing, uh, I'm not even sure whether this is the case today, but I I don't think it is now. Uh, Ships, uh, merchant ships had to carry a sextant. You had to be able to take a sun sighting um, and, and calculate your position Uh, using using the sun and the stars, because GPS was in its infancy. Systems weren't very reliable and they weren't very precise. Um, And of course, before that, there was no such thing as GPS. Uh, And um, the knowledge to be able to compute your position from the stars has a really ancient lineage. In fact, it's actually probably more accurate historically to say that people understood the stars before they understood position. And they understood position when they did come to understand the geometry of the Earth in terms of latitude and longitude, latitude north of the equator or south of the equator, and longitude east or west of a kind of fixed point around the Earth. When they did understand it, they understood it in terms of the stars because astronomy came before geography. So they were thinking, not here I am at 52 degrees latitude, therefore I'm 52 degrees around the Earth from the equator. They thought about it in terms of this is where the height of the pole star above the horizon is 90 degrees minus 52 uh, because when you're standing at the north pole the pole star is directly above your head and when you're standing on the equator the pole star is on the horizon and they thought about the earth in terms of their position relative to the star so you know people one of the things that's often said about the middle ages is that you know copernicus made the universe bigger that people in the middle ages thought the earth was all there is and i mean that is nonsense people understood that the earth was a speck in a vast cosmos they understood that the stars were, you know, just infinitely far away. Um, and so, you know, I think astronomy gives you all of that. But, but I get away from your, your question about navigation.
2: Well, it, before you jump into the question about navigation, I just think this is such an important point, though, that it's easy for us to have this intellectual snobbery where we talk about how great a GPS is. And sure, GPS is great. But what happens when you, your GPS falls in the water? And and now all of a sudden you're not quite as smart as you think you are, and you start to realize the questions and the the ideas that the mid, you know that the ancient
3: peoples had to work through so that they could actually not die. <laughs> yeah, and this happened to me not so long ago. I was sailing around the coast of Scotland, and our GPS crashed, and I couldn't like fix it. I couldn't figure out how to reset it. And I was calling up saying, well, how do I do a factory reset? And it wasn't working. Uh, So I was reliant on the charts, the paper charts that we had that were similar to, you know, ones that had been used hundreds of years before, and just following around the coast and staying in deep water and using the landmarks and taking position fixes using the compass, which is another kind of medieval innovation that that came over uh, almost certainly from China. And so, you know, to, to kind of answer your question a bit more fully, people who travelled well-known routes, uh, they followed what they knew. They followed, you know, either they followed along the coast or if they went out of sight of land, they knew that they kind of had to set a course for a particular direction, either a compass direction, if they had a compass, or you know uh, a certain star that would be seen perhaps just before uh, sunrise or just after sunset or something like that. Um, and they could set their course and keep going in a straight line until they got to land. And if they were blown off course by a few miles or a few tens of miles, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, Then, of course, when they went across the oceans, they needed a bit more serious equipment. And that's when they need to start thinking a little bit more seriously about latitude uh, and then later longitude. But longitude was a very hard thing to fix because longitude is all about your relative position on the Earth. So you need to be able to not only compute your position by essentially measuring the height of the sun above the horizon or the height of a star above the horizon, which people have been able to do for centuries, but also imagine that somebody at the same time is doing that in another place and the result that they're getting and that is a is a hard thing to do Uh, and and ultimately it relies on you know really excellent predictive astronomy and clocks accurate clocks
1: wow there's just so many things that we could keep talking to you about i know it's getting late over there uh as we're recording this, it's past nine o'clock at night. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us on our show. But before we let you go, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where would you send them?
3: Uh, well, of course you can read my book, The Light Ages, which is, is out now and is out in paperback uh, in a couple of weeks in in North America. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Seb underscore Folk. Uh, and, uh, and I have a few videos on YouTube and that kind of thing as well. So I just really encourage you to, to find out more because there's so much fascination in, in the world of medieval science.
1: Andy and I both have benefited tremendously from your book. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for sharing your insight with us on this show. Thank you again, Dr. Falk for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us and enlighten our listeners. Well, thank you listeners so much for joining us on this edition of AC podcast, uh, Be sure to pick up a copy of The Light Ages. You can purchase this on Amazon or any major book retailers. Uh, Again, we've benefited tremendously from it, and we hope it'll do the same for you. The Apologetics Canada podcast, the AC podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next week with more stuff to think about.